0: Cast. it's not about the corner office it's not about the fancy title it's not even about the extra money responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you and that care takes on many forms this podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P H A L A N X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a great guest with you all today is Mr. John Thompson. John, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Earl. Nice to be here. Oh, yeah. No, I can't wait to have this conversation we're going to have here. And listeners, what I want you to know about John is he is the author of The Dashboard Effect, which is something we're going to be talking about quite a bit here, and co-founder and chief strategy officer at Blue Margin, Inc., And he's been an entrepreneur and business executive for the past 25 years. He's co-founded several companies before founding Blue Margin in 2011, including Vercuity, a data analytics firm that grew to over 500 employees and was backed by One Equity Partners. So, John, I'm really excited with your background and your your business acumen here and and your experience to hear how you answer that first question, where I start off all of my guests. When you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that look like to you?
1: Yeah, that is a a lifelong question right there. Um, It's funny. I think back to when I graduated from college, Colby College in Waterville, Maine. I joined the Peace Corps, uh, not because I wanted to save the world, but because I liked adventure. And it sounded nice to do something good as well. Um, And I went to Botswana. Uh, for two years, and through a series of events, went from teaching school to becoming the head game warden of the Haberone Game Reserve with an English degree. Um, Essentially, the backstory on that is I showed up to help with an environmental education class for the game warden, and there wasn't much communication. It was two-way radio across the Kalahari. So there was sort of a month and a half to, a delay between when I signed up and went to do that job. And when I got there, he had already retired. And they said, okay, you're the game warden. So <laughs> I jumped into that position being a young, I don't know, uh, naive guy. And, uh, you know, looked at the game reserve, asked around what needed to be done, Uh, Made my own assessments and started charging forward with we're going to do a controlled burn and we're going to uh, change how the scouts work in this way and that way. And was surprised when I was stepping on toes and getting resistance. Um, Looking back on that experience, what I would have done for the first year is to really listen and gather information and then support what was already working and the expertise that people had in place and the various talents and abilities throughout um, rather than charging forth. Um, it's interesting because I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. And even though we built a company that was bought by private equity that scaled up, um, started this company in my brother's basement, he and I and his cat in the cat litter box, trying to figure out how to penetrate the market we were after. That role of entrepreneur is putting on all hats and throwing on the 150-pound backpack and saying, I'll take care of everything, running up the hill yourself. Uh, Since we've scaled up this business, we're now raising leaders underneath us, and it's dislodging me from that position of being the person that does everything and forcing me to think about how to be an effective leader, raising other people up, shifting my identity, Not feeling threatened and insecure about no longer uh, finding my worth and effectiveness and survival and the things I used to do, uh, drawing people out of themselves, helping them to hit their maximum potential. And so, my perspective on responsible leadership is largely from the vantage point of how not to do it, having been an entrepreneur for so long and the lessons I'm learning along the way. Um, and my other perspective comes from what we do in our business, which is to create transparency in other companies uh, that creates healthy cultures and thriving businesses, essentially. And we can dig into that.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Well, no, and I like that, and, and thank you for sharing the story. That that sounds like uh, an amazing adventure there that that you were on. But you know, I I've, especially like that that last part there. Cause that's one of the things that that I have. A hard time getting, especially new leaders to to realize. And, and the way I put it is, you know leadership is less about doing the thing and more about making sure the thing is getting done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sounds like you know, you kind of got there a, at some point as well. Uh, but the other piece I think is very valuable about what you said there was the mistakes piece and learning and and evolving. And I go back and i've I've shared this on this podcast a bunch of times, but I'll share it again. One of the first pieces of advice my senior uh, drill instructor gave us when I got to boot camp, and I'll never forget it. Senior drill instructor, Sergeant Buck, he says, if you never learn anything else from me the entire time you're here, and this was day one, he said, the only bad mistake is one you make twice. <laughs> and that just stuck with me, right? And, and I thought that was extremely valuable. And I try to take that with me today. And I tell everybody, the only bad mistake is one you make twice because, you know, if you, you make all the mistakes, but learn from it and and make a mistake in a different way, but don't make the same exact mistake again. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and be patient with yourself along the way, because I'm sure going from civilian to Marine, uh, you know, was a shift in identity. And yeah. uh, I've been, I've been watching this journey myself. My identity was the guy that sort of said, get, get out of my way. I'll get it done. And this is the way we're going to do it. And here's my vision. Everyone needs to understand it. I don't have time to explain it. Let's do it. Um, And that is great for getting the company up to about 20 some people, but then begins to be counterproductive when you're looking to scale and organize a larger company. Um, And what I found is that that identity piece is so intricate and intertwined with everything. How you think, how you act, what you value—that dislodging that—I think is the reason that many entrepreneurs never make the transition to scaling up into a, more of a leadership instead of a doer role. And I'm just sort of in the midst of that process, and it's—it's it's fascinating to watch how, even though I learn from each mistake, that—that that survival and significance that I attach to that identity of being the guy that does everything doesn't want to let go easily.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, and and it is it's it's hard. I mean, especially once you have something like you know, I mean, with, with your company Blue Margin that you, you co founded with your your brother, correct? Yes. Yeah, you know that's a family business. It means a lot, right? And and it, there's a lot of 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 uh, there's a lot more involved with that. A lot more ownership involved with that. So, uh, you know, I can see why that would be a little bit more of a uh, a little bit more of a struggle to, as you put it, kind of, you know, let go of some of that, that power, if you will.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when you're, when you're in a small organization, you're the lead person, you're the entrepreneur wearing every hat. You always have the answer, or at least you feel like you do. And what is taking shape as far as responsible leadership for me is that I need to assume that I don't understand the picture fully And ask questions and ask, uh, you know, what and how questions instead of, um, you know, are you doing this and why did you do that? Questions that sort of make people defensive or give them a yes, no option to answer because I'm leading towards something and they're trying to guess what. If instead I say, how are you thinking about the alignment of our marketing and our target market, or. uh what are your thoughts related to increasing our production efficiency as it relates to our our project management team and let them answer it's very tough to not have an answer in mind and try to lead them there and instead let that go and let other people explore how they think about things and develop their thinking because you you think well they're less experienced i don't want to wait the three years for them to figure it out But I think responsible leadership is helping them through that curve much more quickly, affirming when they're on track, uh, holding up a mirror when they're off track, uh, not not letting them stub their toe and make a thousand mistakes like you did for many years, um, but instead really guiding them more quickly. And I found that, you know, it took me sort of 10 years to get really, really good at this process in blue margin. And I'm seeing people get as good and better than me inside of a year, year and a half. Uh, so that gives me some hope that there's something I'm doing right to draw people out into their fuller potential.
0: Oh yeah. Well, and you just hit on on something else too that I'm really passionate about. I, I talk to a lot of organizations about it, is this idea of of cognitive diversity, right? And and yeah. a lot of organizations get caught into that is, you know, uh, you know, this person's only been with the company for, you know, maybe a week. Uh, but you know, so, you know, they haven't only been alive for a week. Right, they they they've got all these experiences that they had before they came to your organization. They got all of this this background knowledge, you know, all of their socioeconomic experiences, all of their college or lack thereof, all of their real world experiences. That person has been in the organization for a week may be the person that's going to look at the problem that you're trying to solve and give you the idea that you're going to sit back and be like, "Holy cow, I would have never ever." thought of that i had a um a guest and, and i love this saying um he said it, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the bottle <laughs> and i thought wow that that's a great way yeah. to put it right because that's what we get stuck in we, we get so close to the the problem that we have a hard time looking outside to find solutions and that person is new to the organization sometimes is just that fresh set of eyes that we need to find a different way of looking at it right
1: yeah, and you know, our base defense mechanism is to feel threatened by people that are different from us or think differently. And rather than fight that and sort of, you know, give it the power of being the opposition in your mind, recognizing it and saying, OK, I see there's that that tendency to feel uncomfortable and want to resist this person and their different way of approaching things or their different whatever. Um, and do an assessment say, look, I've got to have that diversity of ideas. It's amazing when you're coaching yourself, even in a small team, you can, you can be very creative, smart folks and, and coming up with the greatest innovations possible. And you just hit a ceiling and then someone comes along with a book or a consultant talks to you, or you talk to a counterpart in the industry, like I did today with a company in UK that's ahead of us. And it. It completely blows the doors off your limitations and opens your thinking. And without that, you can you could be at risk without realizing it because it feels like you're covering everything in the known world when, in fact, it's only everything in your known world. Um, And that's that's hazardous. That can really slow you down. I think that probably has slowed us down at different points. It's just hard to detect because it doesn't feel like
0: you're missing something. Yeah, no, that is that is wisdom right there. That is absolute wisdom uh no, I love it. See, I love where this conversation's going already it's it's uh there's some solid gold here folks and uh I hope you're you're cashing in on this and taking some notes because uh uh we we've already got uh got some good advice for you here so uh i hope you're you're taking uh taking all this in um but with all this, so you know you you kind of shared your story about about going over and and being a game warden and all these good things I'm really kinda curious like wh- what in between that and now, what got you really passionate about data? Hmm.
1: Yeah, um, probably my brother more than anything. So that business that we started in 2000, we went out and raised venture capital. I was always the kid in our group of kids when we were going doorbell ditch and everyone would say, I'm not going to go ring their doorbell. And I'd say, well, I'll do it. Why not? So I was the guy out there raising venture capital, and I have a a creative mind. To me, there's, you know, 10 ways to get out of a welded shut steel box with no windows, uh, if you just sit down and think about it. So I I like solving problems, and I like going to market and evangelizing ideas that I'm enthusiastic about. Uh, My brother's the technician. And uh, he's really brought that side of things, the technical piece, the operations piece, and I've always been the the market presence and sort of evangelizer of what we're doing. Um, it, was, it was actually a strange uh, set of steps that got us into data. We were both running cellular phone dealerships, and we have another brother who was, he's a Harvard Business School guy, and he was uh, one of the partners at a venture capitalist fund. And he said, you guys need to start at dot com because that's that's still hot and right. uh we said all right we'll do that we're going to sell cell phones over the internet and we're going to have a what we called incentive driven referral marketing and it's going to be called phone points and if you buy our phones then you and you refer others then you get accessories etc it was convoluted and crazy and uh we thought it was so proprietary we wouldn't even tell people the name of our company in case they figured out our our magic formula which was not viable in the end uh one of our investors said i don't think that makes a lot of sense i think you should help companies to manage their cell phone accounts because it's really an." this is before unlimited minutes and we said well he's wrong let's prove why he's wrong we whiteboarded it by the time we went through the whole argument we said oh my gosh i think he's right and so we started doing that analysis of, of cell phone expenses for big companies, Swift Transportation and uh, B of A and, you know, big companies. Um, and that got us going that direction. And then for this business, after one or two other adventures in real estate and stuff, we came back to our roots of, of startup and technology and data. Um, we wanted to enable companies to use cloud productivity tools And so we were setting up Office 365 and SharePoint, and we were so, you know, nascent as a company that our only demo was our own SharePoint site. And on it, we had visual analytics in the sales area of this company portal, SharePoint. Um, We had financial graphs and so on. And when we showed that to customers, they said, what's that? and we explained these are analytics that give you a picture of how you're performing in context of the various areas of your business and they said oh we we definitely want that so we started building that into SharePoint and within 2 years it became apparent that the primary pain the root of most of most companies problems is poor visibility at some point where there's a lack of alignment a lack of ownership a lack of distributed decision making uh, just a lack of of mastery and oversight of the business um, from the numbers and data perspective. And so we went all in on helping companies to take this raw material that they have, all the data that comes out of their Salesforce and NetSuite and other transactional systems and magic spreadsheets and so on, and get that organized and streamlined so it's easy to then connect to a graphical analytics tool like Power BI in our case, although there's a lot of good ones out there. Um, and automate a scoreboard. So similar to an athletic event where you need to be able to look up and see, here's the most critical information for what I need to do right now. Uh, Companies lack that often, and they have a once a month spreadsheet that requires a lot of wading through and cross-referencing and mental calculations. Uh, If instead they, they had a clear view at the salient stuff that drives their decisions and uh, their focus and prioritization and can get everyone looking at that so they're aligned uh it's revolutionary and very few companies do that well we're still at at the front side of the chasm in terms of crossing the chasm with bi being sort of uh, integral to every business but i can't imagine running a you know, a pool cleaning business with a staff of six without having dashboards to see what's going on, because otherwise you end up in this reactionary mode and sort of dealing with whatever's flapping around and making the most noise at any on any given day. So that's what we do, and and our our goal is really healthy, successful companies. And I can I can talk more about that if it's of interest.
0: Yeah, no, I think so. I just want to you know kind of really make a a pitch here because you know as we talked uh you know in in our uh pre-show workup you know i was very interested in this cuz i love data well i think the thing i didn't share is one of the reasons why i love data is when i was in the marines um i was a weather marine i jokingly told people oh, i was nice. one of the smart marines right so we we dealt with data volumes upon volumes of data constantly right and you know, I, I can I can feel most organizations pain because I remember the difference of looking at we would get reams and reams of meteorological data, temperature, pressure, humidity, the whole nine yards, kind of a constant stream. And you're looking at this and it's just like, what have all these numbers mean? Right. But hmm. part of our training was being able to, to back then we had to do everything by hand, decipher those numbers, plot them on maps and visualize it. And then once you get it out, you can see, okay, here's where the low-pressure system is. Here's where all these things are going on. And so, you know, I think most organizations, and, and I'm I'm curious, this is more of a question, I would say most organizations have all of this data laying around. The big problem is, kind of as you somewhat alluded to there, it's just not being used. They don't know how to put it to work. They don't know how to visualize it and make it something that means something, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a simple concept to get your data into one place so you can cross-reference between the different systems, your accounting system, your HR system, your customer relationship management system, and then connect those tables to a visualization tool. Excel will do it, but Power BI or Tableau or Click or one of those um, will do it. And you ask people what they need to see, you put it on a dashboard, you put it in front of them and they're happy. And that was our understanding when we got started. And we've since figured out, I think, the vast majority of ways to do it wrong. Um, And one of them is to ask people what they want to see and then put it on a dashboard. Because uh, similar to, you know, UX design, how someone interacts with an electronic piece of machinery or anything, um, just because they interact with it well doesn't mean that they could design that that flow of interaction and make it seamless and intuitive and and as useful as possible the same is true of any subject matter expert who you say tell me what data you need on your dashboard they do know what metrics matter most to them but they're not uh, likely clear on what's the narrative i go through to gain awareness of how i'm doing and to analyze why i'm doing well or not and then to take action, to be able to make decisions. What what exactly is my process? And so part of what we have learned to do is to pull that narrative, that process out of folks through a series of questions, and then a storyboard that we pressure test and say, hey, if this KPI is red, if you're doing poorly in this one metric, what's the first question that comes to mind? What do you do? What action do you take? Uh, what decision do you make? And press on that until we get a a sort of smooth flow through their process to identify an issue and fix the issue. Um, And then there's other things around keeping it simple and doing it in sprints and little modules and, and other change management uh, issues that, you know, we had plenty of gotchas in the early years. Um, So that simple process of, of turning that data into information like you guys did in the Marines and then making that functional to do something with it um, is, is a little more subtle than meets the eye in, in business. And, and we have a podcast that we lay out all that stuff. We don't keep it secret. We're happy to help. And if someone can do it for themselves, fantastic. But a lot of times they need extra capacity and expertise.
0: Yeah, well, definitely. No. And, and, uh, go ahead real quick, uh, share the name of the podcast. We'll make sure it gets in the show notes, but go ahead and share the name of the podcast while we're on it.
1: Yeah, it's the same as our book. It's called The Dashboard Effect. Okay. And you can find and, it on and, all the major platforms.
0: Yeah, and and listeners, uh, you know, I highly uh highly recommend that there. We'll get a link to that, but go check it out. I always like to support fellow podcasters and uh, you know, it's 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 a good show. And and if you're into data, data analytics, data visualization, all the stuff we're gonna be talking about here. Uh, go, go give it a subscribe and and share with your folks and and help their show grow, do all the great things you do for me to help make their show successful. Um, We've also
1: got a book of the same name. I mentioned the dashboard effect. I'm happy to send anyone an electronic and or audio copy of that book and I'll give my contact information at the end. So happy to do that for any of your listeners.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate that listeners take him up on that offer there. Um, well, on that note, so you mentioned wanted to share some success stories a minute ago. Uh, but before we do that, let's uh, go ahead and, and take our commercial break, pay a few bills, and we'll come back and we'll get into those, uh, those success stories. How does that sound? Sounds great. Thanks. All right, listeners, we are back with John Thompson of The Dashboard Effect and Blue Margin. Uh, So, John, we we talked a little bit about data, data visualization, uh, the dashboards. Um, You would mentioned a few kind of success stories, uh, you know, what do you got to share with us? Yeah. So, uh, you know,
1: on the theme of responsible leadership, um, one of the things that we think is essential to that is to create transparency for everyone in the organization. Um, and in doing so, you also empower them, you give them firm footing and help them have an ownership mentality to their area of responsibility, and create this sort of uh, team accountability to what we're trying to do. Um, so that's, that's a big part of, of what we help companies to put together. Um, we work we tend to work in the mid market with private equity firms um, and in all sorts of industries, manufacturing, distribution, commercial services, private healthcare care, software as a service, and a few others have done some things in agriculture, so on. Uh, some of the big successes commercial services we company that we worked with from when they were at three hundred and fifty million top line to six hundred and fifty. so rapid growth. CEO is Adam Coffey and we interview him on our podcast. He's got a book called The Private Equity Playbook and another one called The Exit Strategy Playbook. He's quite the expert, but he had a highly complex uh, commercial services company, literally millions of service calls a year, thousands of people running around in trucks, installs and maintenance of various equipment. And turnover was a big issue and productivity was a big issue because of the complexity of it, just keeping up with the logistics was near impossible. And it was structured like any company or any organization sort of top down. I don't know if you're familiar with team of teams, you probably are, but that's the, yeah, that's the idea of putting the instrumentation, the information, the tools in people's hands directly. Uh, That gives them agency and a sense of significance and ownership and, you know, having the same sort of useful instrumentation that the executives have, but appropriate for their role. Um, again, turnover turnover was a huge issue. Without those those tools in place, whether it's in the military or in business, you tend to have this overriding, vague, perpetual pressure to do better, and a focus on your points of failure. And it's sort of uh, you're as good as your last success and that's it Uh, when you capture that performance for an individual on a dashboard they can look at that and not be overrun by recency bias and you know this this sort of general pressure that isn't specific and instead can see there's what i'm responsible to achieve i'm on target i can go home well get well rested feel good about my work as an entrepreneur, it's it's often the case that your, your uh, task list ends up larger at the end of the day than when you started and you always feel like you're behind the eight ball. This kind of visibility into actual performance metrics uh, dispels a lot of that sense of anxiety and always being behind and unsure if you're succeeding or not. So we helped implement that at this company for Adam. Um, They reduced just by giving people the visibility their turnover, which was a major issue by about 50 percent and increased their uh, operating profitability by about 4 percent. And the key there is not having to do process reengineering or training or, you know, any of any of the sort of heavy lifts to transform how an organization performs. Um, And it doesn't put the burden on the leaders to perpetually evangelize and beat the drum and do all hands meetings to say, "Remember, this is our priority, and you guys are doing great. Go team, go!" You know that only goes so far. It becomes disingenuous. It feels like you're being driven by someone who is looking to succeed in business and is uh, sort of framing it as you're all in it together, and they're. They're patting you on the back or they're they're yelling at you for doing it wrong. Instead, you've got your very empirical feedback on how you're doing. And that created engagement for all those techs running around that made them want to stay more than making $3 more per hour somewhere else. So that was a trend, uh, a tremendous success. And and there's some others we can dig into.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love that story. Uh, but... I got to ask because, you know, I I like the success stories, but I'm kind of curious because, you know, I'm a storyteller. Uh, When when I when I speak at organizations, I I like to tell stories. And one of the stories I like to share, because I think it's got a lot of different applications. Um, Are you familiar with the story of of a gentleman named Ignaz Semmelweis? No. Oh, I'm intrigued just on the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I think uh, it's very interesting for what you do. So I'll give you the the very short version, because Ignaz Semmelweis was a doctor uh, in Budapest in the early 1800s. And um, he used he tried to use data uh, to help end what was then known as uh, uh, childbed uh, fever. Uh, now we know it as blood poisoning. Okay. And this was about 20 or so years before Joseph Lister uh, discovered germs. But what he had noticed is the hospital he was working in, um, there was about a 40 ish percent, depending on the month mortality rate of mothers giving birth in the maternity ward. Wow. And through a series of, of unfortunate events, he put two and two together that it was uh, cleanliness practices of the doctors, uh, that was leading to the deaths of these women. And so he started instituting uh, hygiene standards and he tracked this very meticulously. And he had all this data to support that once he instituted these policies, that the the death rate went from about 30 to 40 percent, depending on the month, down to about three to four percent.
1: My goodness.
0: But in spite of all of this data. The the thought process at the time was there was this kind of standard of, you know, if you were a practicing doctor, you, you were expected to, you know, look like you had been practicing. You were expected to have bloody clothes and look like you mm. had been working on cadavers and you were advancing your career, right? So right. clean doctors were seen as people who didn't have patients, didn't have people to work on. And so... In spite of all this data, he was dismissed, right? And the child, uh, the childbed death, uh, fevers went back up to 30, 40 percent, and he was kicked out of the hospital. And the tragic end of it is he knew he had the solution, nobody would listen to him. He ended up going insane and dying in an insane asylum, mm-hmm. uh, right? Tragic. And it became Uh, known as the Semmelweis effect when in spite of data to the contrary, because of societal norms, nobody will listen to you. I'm putting a little bit of a, uh, a spin on it there, but that's the the short version of it. So I'm just kind of curious with all of your experiences, how many times do you run into that today where you go into an organization and say, Hey, I've got this data. It's showing me this, but an organization is like, I think I'm still going to do this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I love that you asked that. Um, Our first customer, in fact, uh, when we got to the point of saying, "Okay, here's the things that would really make a difference if there was clear visibility into them, his response was, oh, no, I could never show that because he's he's very busy sort of managing the message and managing people's sense of security and what they're used to and status quo and things. And we thought that I don't even understand that. But we have learned over the years and about 260 clients now to date um, and a few thousand projects that you can't just say to the leaders, what do you want to uh, expose as far as performance metrics for any set of reports? We need to identify who's the user of this and the user of it is the person that is responsible for or has a significant influence on the outcome that we're tracking in the upper right of that dashboard. So. Uh, you know, profit per patient or whatever the case is, Uh, maybe profits and patients isn't the best example, but um, diversity of of product purchases per customer or something like that. And they've got to influence that. And rather than asking someone else and then imposing it on them, and rather than asking them, what numbers do you want to see? We have to start with the end goal. What is it you're trying to achieve in your job? What makes you successful? What gives you gratification? What allows you to advance your career? What makes the biggest contribution to the company from your vantage point and what you're responsible for? And start with that end goal and then work backwards to what are the leading indicators or or causes, things that influence that outcome that you're trying to achieve. And how do we make sure that those things are on track early enough so we can make the adjustments or so we can talk to the right team members to improve them? And that starts to reveal then the narrative and the metrics you need to look at, not just the end goal, how much do we sell, but how many people did we talk to? How many presentations do we give? How many trade events do we go to? uh, What sort of response rate? How is our email marketing working? Whatever it is. That tells the whole narrative that then impacts that end goal. And if you can center on what they care about most, what they're trying to achieve, and then give them all the links in the chain to help give them uh, more mastery and control and oversight and tools to influence that, then you get that buy in. And again, we like to do a, a quick sketch storyboard and pressure test assumptions about that narrative and then do a first real draft of the dashboard and have them play with that and come back and say, this works and that doesn't. And I had a new insight and then put it into production. Once we've adjusted it, we learned that the hard way we thought for sure, you know, the customer's always right. The vendor says, what do you want? You build it to spec with integrity and you give it to them. And those things fell flat and, you know, had marginal results at best. We had to put on our sort of strategic guide hat in order to to get to tangible results so your point is really well taken i appreciate you raising that
0: yeah no it's it's a fascinating story and as you were saying that it 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 brought up one more and this is a very quick one it was uh, malcolm gladwell in one of his ted talks he he talks about people uh, to your point not really knowing what they want and he says if you poll 100 people what they want in a coffee They'll, the overwhelming majority will come back and say, I want a rich, dark, hearty roast because Mm. that's what all the coffee commercials will tell you is you want a rich, dark, hearty roast. That's what we sell. It's rich, dark, hearty roast. My coffee is better. You poll them. They're going to tell you on a rich, dark, hearty roast, but you give them a rich, dark, hearty roast. And the first thing they're going to do is add milk and sugar to it. (laughs) So what they actually want is a milky, sugary coffee drink, (laughs) not a rich, dark, hearty roast, right? So I guess that that feeds into my next question, kind of piggybacking off what you just said is, how do you, you mentioned storyboarding. How do you get somebody to kind of understand that maybe what it is that they think they want to look at data-wise may not be what they need to look at data-wise?
1: Yeah, that's the delicate dance we end up in. and we probably err on the, set, on the side of being too amenable um, because of sort of all that legacy uh, structure and paradigm around the, 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 the vendor and the customer and the customer's always right. Um, the customer's not always right if they're not an expert in the thing that you've learned how to do by doing it wrong a bunch of times and, and you've know, gotten all the war wounds so that you really are, have a strong opinion on what works and what doesn't. So it, it's always that start with why. I can't remember who wrote that book and did that TED oh, Talk. Simon Sinek. Yes. Thank you. Uh, it, you know, and you, you think, well, that's the simplest concept ever. And then he digs into it and you say, oh my gosh, that really is the key that opens the door. Um, if you can get to people's why, not what kind of coffee do you like, but what what experience do you enjoy when you're sitting back and relaxing uh, with a cup of coffee or something like that. Um you get to that why, then uh, you can keep coming back to that in order to achieve this. Let's look at what are the um, leading uh, activities, indicators, and so on that have the biggest influence. And let's get rid of everything else because if it's cluttered, it just doesn't work as a a general rule of thumb. Um, And pushing back is tough because, you know, someone might say, You might say, well, can you explain to me why you want to see that metric? And that can baffle people. What do you mean why? You're the vendor. I'm telling you what I want. Put it in there. I know my business better than you. And so we have to be very tactful and say, yes, get it 100%. But for us to really build it, we've got to internalize what the value is, what it drives. So let me ask you this. If you had that number up there and it was red, you were below the goal, what would that cause you to decide do or ask what question what action what decision and if it's not that one's just informational then we're pretty strong about you need to remove anything that is just informational that it's it's not really informational unless it does something it's just data or if it repeats some other form of data on that same page just in a different way um, then we push pretty strongly to get that off of there. And they have to, you know, there has to be a good trust and, um, uh, treating people with dignity and, and, and not being a jerk, not being the, the tech person that's disgusted that people don't understand everything they do, um, as, as tech people can do. Uh, we're very careful to hire for those who are teachable, um, but also know how to bring the greatest value by standing their ground for the sake of the client. Um, something we're always learning. It's always a dance. It's always delicate.
0: Yeah. No, I, I love that you put, use the word trust there. Cause I think that is, that is essential, right? Like they, they, you have to build what I heard in that response was you have to be able through the course of that interaction to build enough trust with the client that when you ask that question, that they know that there's a reason that you're asking that question, and maybe their ears perk up and listen a little bit like hey you know John and his crew they 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 don't they're not just trying to get out of doing work for for the same rate they're asking me a question that maybe has an impact on what they're doing for me i trust them to ask me good questions
1: yeah and that uh i don't know if it falls necessarily under responsible leadership but You know, the core of business is to bring value to the market. That's the premise of it. And then you get compensated for that. And really prior to bringing value to the market is relationship. Um, And the farther you can push out of your mind, as far back as you can push it till it falls off a cliff, your agenda towards selling and, and making money even though that ultimately is the byproduct of delivering value to the market, if that becomes the driver or the or the orientation around how you behave, um, people won't trust you. So we work very hard at no matter what, even if it's not us, even if they do it themselves, even if we recommend they don't do it, um, we want to make sure we're we're bringing them value, and and it's actually not all altruistic. If you do enough projects where it wasn't, there wasn't enough value and it wasn't quite the right fit, but you acquiesce to the clients, uh, you know, what they thought was the right design and so on, they're not going to be happy. The CEO is going to get a hold of it, call you directly. The PE partner is going to chime in and say, we spent this money and I don't see the ROI on it. And you're going to spend sleepless nights and do a lot of free work to try and make it right because your reputation is, is critical if you want to be long-term. So it, it's really self-protection to avoid that as much as possible. That sort of agenda oriented interaction with clients.
0: 100%, 100%.
1: It takes time to get to establish that that's who you are with
0: people. Yeah. Yep. Because if you, you don't take time to do it right the first time, you'll make the time to do it twice, right? Yeah, hey, For uh-huh. sure. <laughs> well, John, we've been chatting here for a little over 40 minutes. This, man, the time has just flew by. I feel like we just started talking. Um, is there anything you want to leave listeners with uh, that we didn't get a chance to cover before we get out of here?
1: I, I've just this one thing that I've been realizing as I've scaled up the business and brought on new leaders, and I I put it out there as much a question as, as a point of wisdom or insight would love to hear responses from folks on your podcast or they can reach out to me directly. But I have found that in order to lead successfully, you've got to put people in place to do the things that you are not utterly uniquely qualified to do. If there's something someone else can do, you need to bring people in to do that and keep elevating, delegating, and elevating, as they say in, in EOS, um, uh, continually. And it's, an odd place to be because you sort of wonder, where am I headed with this? Just into the clouds, into oblivion until I'm no longer relevant to the company. And you have to sort of do that in a in a, a walk of faith that what got you here is some some innate talents and skills and drive, and they'll find their next place to make the biggest contribution to the company. But it's a letting go process that is... Incredibly difficult, and I think inevitable almost you don't have a choice about it if you want to achieve what you're trying to achieve, which is to have a company that is scalable and successful and healthy, but doesn't depend on you. Something that depends on you, if you're Lee Iacocca and it's all about you, uh, you haven't done a good job of organization building and leadership, in my opinion. Um, And it's yeah i'm in the throes of it so i i don't sort of have the came out the other side here's all the serendipities that happen and and why you should do this and and the sort of inside insights as to why uh that is the way to do it but i'm finding it's inevitable and rather uncomfortable and need to keep embracing it and and um step into the unknown with courage i guess uh, so curious if, if any of your listeners, listeners have responses as, as your podcast goes out and people comment and would love to talk oh, to anyone I, about
0: that. I, I love that. I love that question. And, and I think it's a great question. I think it's great insight is, is you know, because that's one of the things, you know, that I talk about is uh, I, I see a true measurement of success is not how well it works while you're there is how well it works when you're gone. Yeah, uh, right. And, and that's that's legacy building right there. So I, I love that question. Um. Well, on, on that note, people want to answer that question. They want to get a copy of the dashboard effect. They want to subscribe to your podcast. Find out more about what you're doing at Blue Margin. Maybe have you come in and build some dashboards uh, for their organization. What's a good place for them to find out uh, uh, more about John and 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 what y'all are doing?
1: Yeah. So our website is blue margin m a r g i n dot com. Um, my email, my simple email is John, J O N, there's no H J O N at BlueMargin.com. And I'll even give my number if people want to dial me, uh, 970-214-1652. Um, anyone who wants to email and say, would love a copy of the dashboard effect. I'll send back a link. Anyone who wants to chat, uh, that's what I do nowadays and would love to make connections with anyone who's interested in any of these topics. So, uh, just open myself to that.
0: Fantastic! I'll make sure all that gets in the show notes there, and listeners, one hundred percent, absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, answer that question. I'm I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are uh, on John's question, and uh, make yourself uh, make sure you take advantage of those opportunities. Get your copy of the book. Um, and, and reach out and, and have that conversation that, that John has invited you to have and, and get on there again, encourage you to get on there and subscribe to the podcast and show the the love and support, uh, for, for him, uh, the same way that you do for this show. And on that note, John, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me and my listeners, uh, the graciousness of the gifts that you've given. Uh, the conversation that we've had. It's been outstanding. You've been an amazing guest. Thank you for your time and thank you for being an outstanding guest on this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Earl, and thanks for your service. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode.